I think we've got the video. Round it there, Roshi. You ever on standby? Do you? There you go. <laughs> that was the worst day of my life. The worst day of my life. My God, it was absolutely brutal. What, what happened? OTB AM live weekday mornings from seven thirty on the OTB Sports app. OTB AM with Gillette. Get into your flow with the new Gillette Labs Razor with exfoliating bar. Yeah, you're very welcome. It is that time of year again. The time when OTB AM puts certain items and events from the sporting year into the time capsule. Hello, Jerry Gilroy. How are you? Very well. What's going on? Uh, I've made the effort with the Christmas jumper. At least some of us have. Over. Christmas is over. Al, it's that in-between Christmas, New Year's period where we're still allowed to wear them, technically. Got to look forward to the new year, you know? Yeah, well, that's new, fair. New you, Shane. Big opportunity for you to turn over a new leaf, become that new person you've always wanted to do. New Year's resolutions. Do you have any lined up, Jer? No. Zero. Yeah, there's no point setting yourself up for failure, I think. I actually ah, no, I'm going to I'm going to do some high-end cycling this year. Okay. M- middle-aged man in Lycra. Exactly, yeah. The Why not? You got to embrace these things, Shane. Yeah, yeah. It's coming for you. You're laughing now, buddy. No. But like you're, you're a man who already likes a little bit of Lycra, so That's and, true. And yeah. By the way, middle-aged middle-aged starts at like 35. Is it right? So, so you got, you're like on the downslope already. I've got 6 years left. I, I certainly if hangovers or anything to, to judge by and how they get Increasingly worse year on year. Well, I can oh, yeah. certainly see how um, middle age creeps up on you fairly fast. Speaking of middle age, Nathan Murphy, how are you? Boom, boom. I had to go there. I'm sorry. It's all right. No, I'll accept it. Accurate. I'm well into it. Yeah. How's your um, in between Middle-aged Christmas? Spread. Not great. Yeah. Fair. Fair. <laughs> how's your How's your period going in between Christmas and the New Year? So far? Uh, in between Christmas isn't hel- helping the middle age spread. Turns out uh, very relaxing. A uh, lot of. A lot of taking time out to reflect and uh, are you? all the wonderful things. No, okay. No, I'm what, just uh, what are they, where, uh, taking where? on the, taking on the kids in FIFA and um, you know giving them plenty of smack talk around that. Santa brought FIFA, a nice one. Yeah, I'm, I'm just not sure how it, how much smack talk is acceptable to a nine and ten year old. Oh. Mm-hmm. I, I, you know, I'm teaching them some hard life lessons with a five nil destruction. They will remember forever. It'll it'll stick with them. Smack talk between siblings is fine. I mean, me, me and my brother growing up, I think that's, it's allowed. You need that little sibling rivalry. I'm sure it's in your household already, Nathan, that rivalry between boys especially that seems to crop up. It certainly is. And uh, uh, then they gang up on, on you, uh, which is the most difficult part. Mm, that hurts. That hurts. You haven't gone for a Christmas jumper, Nathan? Disappointed? I don't know what the last no, I, I had my Christmas. I had my Christmas jumper on for the last... There's not, you know, it was starting... Oh, it was a bit of a whiff of it, I won't lie. <laughs> enough's enough so for anyone uh, unfamiliar with what we're about to do this is the OTBAM time capsule where uh, essentially every member of Team OTB um, uh, Team OTB takes one moment from sport in 2022 that they want to uh, I guess hold on to forever cherish forever and put into our time capsule um, we might as well start with, with yours Nathan what have you uh, what have you opted for from the sporting world of 2022 I went for uh, the day the three of us went down to Mondello Park hey. and I whipped both your asses. Was waiting oh, for the two boys. Shane Hanna with a need for speed. He must have mentioned Neil Armstrong about 25 times. And this is what he felt like when he was uh, hitting 175 kilometers an hour. But there I went at 187 kilometers an hour and got the fastest lap around Mondello Park at the BMW driving experience. My uh, my Mark IV car times weren't weren't uh, correctly taken. I just like to point yeah. that out. And I was faster in the Mark IV, so... I would like to. I just would like to take credit for the whole event because it was my idea. So there you go. Fair. And I, I'm not even trying to. I wasn't trying to race. I was just trying to have a nice, good, good fun. <laughs> well, you could have done that in the motorway on the way down, Jer. No, you can't. Or, not legally. You can't, Nathan. And you need to just bear that in mind. 
<laughs> that's, that was your that was one of your sporting um, highlights. One of, of my sporting highlights of the yeah, year. Yes, certainly uh, my sporting highlights amongst the three of us. Uh, I did. I did. I was. I was tempted to put in Manchester City's win against United in the derby, which was maybe the best display of attacking football I've seen mm. uh, at a Premier League game. Um, and I know we're going to talk a little bit later about uh, the women's team qualifying for the World Cup. But I've gone for the two All-Ireland finals. Just the brilliance of both games. But hang uh, on. The- I, I, got the, I got the hurling. What? Did you? Well, this yeah. is the first I've heard about it. All oh, right. Well, well <laughs> done. You're stealing my thunder here. Probably Powers. those ideas. Go on. Go on. Go on. So I'll go with the football final then. Uh, it was actually the first ever football final I was at that I either wasn't working at or Mayo weren't playing in. So mm. I went completely as a neutral. I really didn't care who won. I, I don't have the hatred you do. that a lot of Mayo people have for Galway. You do, of course. No, no. I'd be, I'd be, I'd be far more concerned about Ross Common. Like if Ross Common were to suddenly appear from nowhere and win all Ireland, I, I, it would, it would break your heart. You'd never want to go home again. Uh, whereas Galway have done it previously. I went to college in Galway. My parents live in Galway. Oh, uh, you're kind of trying city. to. It's trying a brilliant city. I don't have a major problem. I also never really believed they were going to win it. You're gooseberrying uh, so, the like Galway kind of. Ah, you're like Ulster people. Oh, when one of us wins, we all win. That's but it gave true. me the first real insight into the pressure that the Kerry supporters are under, sitting in the Hogan stand, surrounded by Galway fans and Kerry fans. And the Galway fans were definitely quite happy to be there and hoping for the best. The venom that the Kerry supporters attacked their own players with from minute one as to how important this was. And they will be letting their county down if they didn't come back with Sam Maguire. And to have to live with that 365 days a year and to still come out victorious, uh, I thought it was a brilliant game. Obviously, Shane Walsh uh, put in one of the performances for the ages. But I just think what David Clifford did Having never won an All-Ireland before, he is on another level to any Gaelic footballer I think we've ever seen before in how he can handle pressure and how there are no doubts about his game at all. Like It is remarkable that we went into that game with Clifford having, what did he, three All-Stars at the time, but no All-Irelands and nobody for a split second doubting that he would deliver. Nobody in a single preview saying, well, David Clifford has to turn up. It was just assumed he would turn up because he always, always turns up. And to finish the game with eight points, some the two marks he made were right in front of where I was sitting. And I was sitting beside you at the semi-final, Jer, against Dublin. And remember he won the mark. Did he get out in front of Mick Fitzsimons? And it was one of those moments you caught, ah, this is the worst rule in the sport because otherwise Clifford catches this and he has to spin. And it's a goal opportunity. And it's one of the great goals if he spins the Dublin defender. But he took the easy option, took the mark, knocks it over the bar. The two marks in the final where the he hides half. behind in the first half where he hides behind is it John Daly about five or six yards and it doesn't look like he has any chance of getting it at all and then it's just this gazelle-like movement where he spins out behind him Daly's lost doesn't even know he's there and he must he must rise four or five feet off the ground collects both of them it deserves a point now he's so good he probably would have just spun and kicked it over the bar anyways but I think I remember that documentary on Cristiano Ronaldo and his jumping ability and how Ronaldo had uh, it was remarkably normal in his ability to jump from just a standing start. Wasn't uh, that godlike. But once he had any sort of a run, uh, the way he could propel himself into the air was unlike any other sports person up there better than most basketball players. And it does feel like Clifford is like that. Uh, they were just two huge moments in the game. And yeah, I think it's one of those 
All-Ireland finals that because of what Shane Walsh did, but particularly because it's Clifford's first All-Ireland final and the ease that he scored eight points. Uh, yeah, I think it's one that'll stick long in the memory. Yeah, I was at the game myself. Dad being a, a Galway man, I had the colours uh, very much on. But it, like, it, it had that special feeling in the air before and you thought something maybe was going to happen for Galway. Kerry, uh, obviously favourites. But there was a serious atmosphere at the game. You were, you were probably, because Mayo weren't involved, able to enjoy it that little bit more as a so-called neutral? Uh, I, 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 listen, this isn't about Mayo, but I've enjoyed all of Mayo's All-Ireland Finals, you know? You can't, can't buy that sort of uh, range of emotions that you go through. <laughs> Your own goals. <laughs> I'd rather not. Yeah. Let's right, not go through them one by one. Uh, yeah, there was. And listen, I, I, I still, no matter how many All-Ireland Finals you go to, hurling or football, I still find the parade around and that noise level as it rises as they head up towards the hill as something that sticks with you and once you brings you back year on year regardless of who's in the game um, and it was it, it, like Kerry similar in a way to the hurling final only for the brilliance of Shane Walsh like Kerry would have won this far more comfortably than they did but even still it felt in that final quarter that they always had them at arm's length and always had that little bit of quality a bit more depth of quality than than Kerry had You feel for um, for Tom O'Sullivan like he just the most unlucky man ever when it com- comes to the All Star. Lucky he picked up his All Ireland medal, but uh, probably only didn't get the All Star because of the fact that he was marking Shane Walsh, and Shane Walsh just shot the lights out. No one could have marked Shane Walsh. That but it was day. a ridiculous decision. Yeah, I think Tom O'Sullivan is on the shortlist for Footballer of the Year. <laughs> it doesn't really make sense. Shane Walsh has one of the great All Ireland final appear- appearances, performances, and because of that, Tom O'Sullivan misses out. As you say, there was nothing anyone could have done. The mood that Walsh was in, and. It's funny, like I, I was, I was looking back at Shane Walsh over recent years. Like, like I remember having a, a launch for our GA coverage in News Talk back in about 2014, and we'd Shane Walsh up, and he'd had that little flick that was on the Sunday game, and everyone was talking about him as been the next big thing, and it never quite happened for him. He was always on that level of being very, very good without quite getting to greatness. And I listened to the football pod a lot in that first year with Andy and Paddy, and they would have really, you know taken his game apart and criticised him and looked at where he needed to improve and felt that that sort of performance was in him, but he just wasn't delivering it on a regular basis. So for him to turn up uh, in what are probably, unfortunately, the latter stage of his career and produce that, uh, you know, is, is brilliant for Galway supporters. It's just such I, a shame that in 10 years' time, do we do we fully remember it? I do think, though, that um, for this to go into a time casual properly, like, Galway needed to win. There needed to be an upset. There needed to be something. There needed to be some moment of drama. Clifford did what we expected Clifford to do and he's kind of ascending to that level of superstardom that Nathan's talking about but um, are we going to remember this as like a special All-Ireland for Kerry because it's their first after a period of time or like when they win three of the next four are we like yeah they, you know, they, they did what they were supposed to do and it was relatively routine because it was, it was actually Galway were slightly better than we expected them to be but ultimately did anybody really think Galway were going to win that game at any stage? No, I don't think so. I, I think the fact that Damien Comer uh, was such a peripheral figure in the game and couldn't get him into it, and you know, I was sat behind Porrick Joyce, and you're waiting for him to make the change and waiting for him to do something different with Comer and find a way of forcing him into the game, and they left it way too late, and it never really happened. So maybe in 10 years' time, again, this is one of those All-Ireland. It's just another one of Kerry's. What year was that? What year was mm-hmm. that? Did, did yeah, go away? Yeah, Which of Clifford's eight All-Irelands? Quite possibly, but and I think does it feel like, the first for Clifford. Does it feel like it's the start of something for Galway? I'm not sure. I think that might have been their chance. I, 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 you know, no, I, 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 I think so as well. Like perhaps, perhaps they, you know, go and 
get themselves to another All-Ireland final, but their two strongest players in Comer and Walsh, uh, you know, are in their late 20s, early 30s. So it's not going to, it's not as if it's an emerging force. It's not a, you know, Mayo of 2012 where you feel this team is going to be around for a long time. And like, Connacht is probably, <laughs> is up there with the toughest provinces right now. Um, like we have Mayo, Roscommon, Galway all in the same side of the draw. What? What? Right, up, there, up there, with, up Ulster. there with the toughest pro- provinces. The tough yeah, up province. there with Ulster. There's only, there's only one. The second toughest. I mean, okay, Ulster. but like second toughest. But maybe there's a be- maybe there's probably more depth of quality in the three teams in Connacht than there even is in Ulster. Yeah, but no, there isn't. There isn't. Like, who've you got? Who've you got up there, Shane? Derry, Armagh, Donegal, Tyrone, Monaghan. I mean, yeah, that's decent. Anyway, Monaghan. you got sidetracked, are nowhere got sidetracked that, as usual man. by nonsensical rankings. Yeah, Monaghan nowhere near the Division 1 team for uh, for nine years, ten years. Uh, we'll, well move done. on. We'll well move on. We all remember all your great Division 1 performances. Of course, yeah. Relegating the dubs. Uh, we'll take it. Uh, so that's our first That's our first selection into the uh, time capsule. I think it's worthy because, as you no. said, it's, it's David I, Clifford's I'm first. You're not going to, okay, Clifford, Clifford. Clifford. Okay, okay, yeah. Okay, that, 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 allows so it. that squeaks it in, just about. Speaking of uh, just squeaking it into the time capsule, Jer, Limerick winning... Another All Ireland, hardly yeah. Brian Cody's last ever matches. The that, manager of is that the, what you, right? Throw yeah, it in, throw yeah, it in. Go on. Yeah, why? Tell us why. Well, because Brian Cody's the greatest manager in any sport in Irish sports history. Although I don't think he ever did. He only win one Phillips Sports Manager of the Year, and I know that was a little bit of a bugbear along the way. Um, and so that was the end, and it ended in this like dramatic fashion with Gerard Hegarty putting in one of the greatest individual performances I've ever had the pleasure. And privilege of witnessing it was Zidane-esque mm. it was like a masterpiece from the very start to the very end his amazing goal is the second score that Limerick have on the day I don't know if you remember this but like one of the best shot stoppers in history is in the Kilkenny goal and it's flashed right across him from a, a part actually you're not supposed to shoot from which we'd seen in the football the week before um, when Dublin scored their goal against Kerry similar finish from Coslo but a just phenomenal performance from Hegarty and at the same time so this is Limerick's great this is the masterpiece that confirms Limerick as one of the all time great hurling teams as well but Cody still manages to align everything he has to get them back into the game against the best team playing their best hurling and I think that's a phenomenal achievement because I don't think anybody really thought Kilkenny were close to Limerick in standard in quality in depth but he brings on Walter Walsh at the start of the second half. Walter makes some big catches. He's involved in the first goal that Kilkenny scored to get them on Limerick's coattails. Richie Hogan comes off the bench, not having played a minute all year, basically. Scores a great point. You're like, what's going to happen? And then Limerick just are like a machine. Um, if you got, if you got uh, book vouchers for Christmas, go and get your hands on Arthur James O'Dea's Limerick hurling book. Um yeah, I think Cody's, the fact that it was Cody's last game certainly gives it merit in terms of putting it into the time capsule. And it's it, an all-time classic game, what are you talking yeah, about? Yeah, no, but I mean... Gar- why, why is there any equivocation in your in your voice? No, there's not. But Garoge Hegarty's performance, as you say, is on a par there with Shane Walsh's in the football. No, it's better. It's better. It's better. Winning performance. He wins. Well, he wins. Oh, fair. It, there was, there's similarities, I think, maybe to Clifford and to Garoge Hegarty in that... Grode Hegarty is coming in after a very quiet semi-final. Yet again, there's no doubt. Every preview is, Grode Hegarty is a quiet semi-final. He's going to turn up in the final. And what is he, four minutes into the game when he smashes that goal in? Yeah, I think Grode Hegarty's performance is... I, I still felt during the game it was somewhat similar to Kerry Galway in that I never truly believed that Kilkenny were going to be able to beat them. Mm. 
I, I can understand that because they're so good. The one thing you would say is that um, they were getting... When, when Richie Hogan gets that point, you're like, oh, maybe something special is going to happen here. But Limerick just managed the game so efficiently from that point forward. The other thing about Hegarty is uh, it's his point that comes after the Kilkenny goal. He just rambles into midfield and is, is picked out by Quaid in absolute oceans of space. And at the very end of the game, he's the one making a run back to stop a fast sideline ball being taken that might trouble the goals. And you're just like, the game intelligence is off the charts, the physicality is off the charts, the skill set's off the charts, and the efficiency was ruthless. So that, that was just an, an all-time great performance. But the end of Brian Cody, that happened this year. Mm. Like, that's actually the biggest story in GA. that career. Well, I think, Jerry, you, you raised an interesting point there. Uh, as somebody who was a judge for the Phillips Sports Manager of the Year for a Ooh. long... I was a lone voice in the wilderness. Out on this, who dined out on this December after December, his big belly full of red wine. Oh, thanks, lads. Yeah, I'll have an extra dessert. Yeah, I've given my time freely to judge this. <laughs> Brian Cody won Manager of the Year once, back in 2003. Yeah. Before, I'd imagine, Gilroy was even a judge. Yeah. So not once, not once did you, in that judging panel, stand up and go, this is the greatest GA manager of all oh, time. I did, yeah. Maybe sure, we should give could, him another one. You could Maybe. out. Maybe, maybe a low voice of reason in the wilderness. Two thousand and nine. Nathan, where, where? Sorry, I wasn't. I wasn't back. I don't think I was back in the nine. So Declan Kidney wins the Grand Slam. You're taking him off, are you? Why not? Why not? <laughs> maybe give him an all seven when Paul Doolan wins the League of Ireland with Drogheda. Um, I wasn't definitely in the room when that happened. Trap. Who else is there? Trap. Joe Schmidt, 2014 again. Mm. Ah, come on. 2014 wasn't the Grand Slam. That's, yeah, I mean... You were definitely a judge that year. Come on, he's speechless. I'm, I'm, oh, it's the first time ever. He's speechless. No, no, no. Indefensible. I'm not. I'm not I'm a, Indefensible. Sure. Do you know why it was? Do you know why it was? Because then at the awards ceremony and the four seasons and the ice bar afterwards, you know, uh, Cody probably Cody probably leave early. He wouldn't give Jared the time of day, but Schmidt would hang around for a quiet drink afterwards. Might get a quiet word with him. Don't she wouldn't so. get with Cody. Pretty this sure is that, what was going on. Pretty sure that's what was going erroneous. On. Erroneous. Maybe. <laughs> Listen, your, I think in your brain that's what you're like currying favor is, with potential interviewees in the future. I didn't no idea that, that was something you do. This is outrageous. I don't. This is. Do apologize to Brian Cody? I make a point of not speaking to these people ever because then you then your vote is is. Um, is corrupted, Nathan, you know. Is there a Phillips Sports Manager of the Year this year? There isn't. I feel like, Nathan, you're getting your revenge here for... Sorry, that's the biggest shock for this. This is a year's worth of taking abuse from Jer in the crappy quiz. This is all coming out at the end of the year. Yeah, it seems seems like uh, you've got an agenda No, no, I'm just saying, you have have clear. you have dined, you have enjoyed... Were you the benefits of being you, a judge? Were you? you were you 20, at those? Twenty years. Nathan was at those dinners. How does he know? Well, I was, that, uh, but I wasn't responsible. I was the one tutting in the corner. Yeah, who, who are you taking off the list there? Again. Take take the people off the list. I'm take. taking Josh Smith off in 2014. All right, grand. Well, Fair enough. Too, get your grand slam 2018. I'll let you have that. It's too late now. <laughs> Liam Sheedy gets it in 2010 for beating them. Yeah, well, that's the thing. That's an all-time classic. But Cody got his. You said he got his. He's yeah. got. He's got one. I think two thousand and three. And do you think this is the thing that Cody's going to be remembered most for, or is this? Well, I'd say. I'd say when he sees you, he remembers it. Chief score. Give me. Give me the short list. Who's that? Who, who judged that? Yeah, he wouldn't say it. He wouldn't say it. How many judges are there? There's a, there's more than just a few, is there? Uh, How many meetings I, are there? I, here? Me on my own, actually. Yeah, right, it was right. me. I I was the anointed one yeah, who pick. did it. Yeah, Sorry. yeah. Understandable. Yeah. Well, I think we can all agree that Cody's final game and Limerick winning another All-Ireland takes its rightful place in the OWAM time capsule. So that's, uh, that's our second pick. The third pick, Nathan, your voice is, uh, is in this, so we'll have Kathleen McNamee with us in just a second. But first, let's hear the commentary 
as the Republic of Ireland women's national team made their first ever World Cup. This was Nathan with Emma Byrne. Amber Barrett's goal gives Ireland the victory that they needed. There'll be no more playoffs. There'll be no more heartbreak because Ireland have finally done it. They have qualified for the 2023 World Cup Finals. What an unbelievable achievement by Vera Powell and her players up there with the great days in Irish sport. Wild celebrations out on the pitch. Emma Bird is in tears. <laughs> I can't believe it. Enjoy every we moment of this. We finally did it. We've finally done it. And what a performance from the girls as well. We're not talking about the defensive performance, sitting off, not playing well, getting there by the skin of their teeth. They did it because they played absolutely brilliant in the first half. They were pure professional, defended excellently. And you can see heartbreak for the Scottish. But I'm sorry, we deserve this one. We 100% deserve that. Kathleen McNamee, Emma Byrne and Nathan Murphy getting emotional there on the... On commentary, Emma was absolutely delighted. Like that, that's probably the Irish sporting highlight of the year. I want to say, oh, it has to be. Yeah, like for the historic reasons, for the momentous occasion, like everything. It's even like I, I'm sorry to bring this up so early on before we've even got into things. But remember, you guys were having that conversation about statues that should be outside yeah, of the Aviva, yeah, and talking about like Charlton and different people and the women's team were kind of joked about if they won the World Cup yeah. next year they would get their statues and I was like no I feel like Amber Barrett's goal that celebration like that deserves iconic moment yeah that deserves Amber Barrett's big toe famous <laughs> <laughs> big toe Nathan you must have been uh, you, you can hear you tearing up there a little bit crying in the in the. Uh, it, was, it, it was such a privilege to be alongside Emma Byrne on the game uh, she's a magnificent pundit but what she has put in to that uh, over you know 20 years and what she did at Liberty Hall in leading the players in 2017 I think was so important at the time for the women's game and finally taking a stand against the FAI and saying enough is enough but also I think the confidence it gave those players and the leadership qualities it instilled in so many of those players that actually you know we have we've put ourselves out there we have made this massive threat and we have got a reward. So suddenly we will constantly demand, not just of everyone around us, but of ourselves as well, that we will expect more and more. And his Emma was very emotional that night. And it was brilliant. One of the best parts of the night was to be pitch side straight after the game and to see Katie McCabe and Denise O'Sullivan and Megan Campbell uh, run over to Emma Byrne the second they spot her and for her to be acknowledged instantly. Uh, but it was a, it was the quality of the goal uh the sort of 20 minutes afterwards of oh, Ireland always make it difficult in whatever sport it is. And can they see it through? Can they see it through? You just didn't want any heartbreak for the players and they saw it through brilliantly. And it, it felt like actually that night was a culmination of everything Vera Pau had been working towards over the previous couple of years, ever since the Ukraine game and the way she went after tough opponents, took the beatings along the way that they were perfectly prepared for a night like that. And I thought it was by far and away the best performance of the Vera Powell era on the biggest occasion. I know you could say maybe the game against Sweden is a bigger result in a way in terms of tougher opposition, but I just thought they, they created so many good chances. They were so composed, so calm, 
And in fact, they were probably the only unemotional ones in the entire stadium while the game was going on. As I think like the mentality of the team was so different that night and it's something we've always talked about like for the Euros qualification. Mm. You could see the fault lines in the team there. You could see where we haven't like had those big game experiences. And I have to say like I actually everything after Amber Barrett's goal, I do not remember the match. Like <laughs> Did I had you watch to- like could, like, were, you, were you having to turn away or was it watching through it was, closed hands? Or? It was watching through closed hands. It was very much a, when can I get my next pint so that I can kind of like ease the pain of this whole thing? Because I was literally sitting there in the seat like this and any time Scotland got anywhere near the goal, any time there was any opportunity for us, I was just probably screaming. Like mm. I don't even remember making proper sounds. I had to go back and watch it properly the next day because so many people were asking for analysis of the match and I was like... Not <laughs> could not tell you what, what happened. Just happened. <laughs> I know Amber Barrett scored, and I know that I had a very nice time celebrating, and that is my yeah. That's all I remember. Well, well even when you look back in the game, it was such a strange game. In that Scotland get this early penalty, Courtney Brosnan makes the brilliant save. Uh, Megan Campbell scores from a throw-in. I have never <laughs> yeah. in all my life covering football seen somebody score from a throw-in and nobody touches the ball at all and her throw-ins were a constant factor uh, throughout that game there was this almighty goal out scramble you remember Ireland have three chances in the space of two those seconds last again. few minutes as Somehow well don't score mm. like the last few minutes for Scotland were scrambling to like oh it, seemed to go it actually on gives me goosebumps just even thinking about it like yeah, how yeah. close we were to letting it all go and the fact that we didn't do it and that we managed to get it on the night well we have the we have the short clip here let's listen to, to Nathan's commentary of that big toe the most famous big toe in Ireland from Amber Barrett <laughs> Takes it on her end step. Barrett for Ireland into the area. Toe push it. Goal! What a moment! Maybe the moment of a lifetime for Amber Barrett. Yeah, Nathan losing his head as per usual. That that's that's some moment, Nathan. I think it's a, an appropriate moment to uh, yeah, fair. lose your head. Yeah, uh, it was I hope there is there an award somewhere in <laughs> Irish media for commentary because that should definitely. Get, I know you already are coming down with the awards, Nathan. But Don't I, I his do. Head any should be a special one for that. An end of year one. I know what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah. Just invent an uh, award yeah. for Nathan. I'd be like Brian Cody at the Manager of the Year. You know, just never getting it. Just uh, constantly <laughs> overlooked. It's a terrible shame. <laughs> like it was such a, a goal of brilliant quality as well. Like, the little cushioned header from Nee Fahey originally. It was probably the first time in the whole game where Denise Sullivan got the ball where she wanted it and had some time and picked out the perfect pass. And the first touch, like, we all talk about the big toe or the toe poke or whatever way, uh, whatever you call it in your part of the country. <laughs> but the first touch from Amber Bauer to bring her away from the Scottish defence was just of the highest quality. And then the composure of the finish, like Kenny Cunningham broke it down brilliantly. I remember on off the ball the night after that as a player, the million different things that go through your head in that moment. But I think what you saw with the celebration as well and the pointing towards the armband and her interview afterwards, that the composure is everything that Amber Barrett is about. And, you know, the night didn't need adding to, but I think her words afterwards just reflected the maturity of this squad and what they're what they're really all about. Yeah, I think the fact that it happened in such close proximity to the Creasler tragedy as well just added weight to it because everyone it was kind of out of everyone's heads at kickoff, and then as soon as she scores and she's immediately yeah has the presence of mind to think of that for the celebration. But as well. I think as well that the whole te- like because Katie was the first person over to her and she noticed what yeah, she what was, was doing. doing and like it was a split second and she had that split second reaction herself to you know as well hit the armband and say like you know this is this is bigger than us it's bigger than what we're doing tonight and but I think I. I'm not massively even surprised about this team that they're like that because if you look at the way Nathan was talking about Liberty Hall, you know, 
they've always had to be aware of larger things at play in Irish society. They've always had to be aware of larger things that they didn't have control over and pay tribute to them. And in the same way that they pay tribute to Emma Byrne getting the, this team to where they were. And like the thing about Emma Byrne as well is like, even to this day, she's still tough on those players. You know, yeah. you ask her what her opinion is on how Katie McKay played. And even though they obviously have such a great relationship and she thinks so highly of her, she'll still be like, nah, nah, nah. Katie, she can do better than that. I don't, I don't know what she was at. And I think that's why this team, like obviously the Vera Powell has been the catalyst for like the major change, but the fact that we have those voices within Irish football mm. in general is so important. And I think it's so important when, especially in the sense of women's football, when a lot of the time, maybe some of the commentary... It can we converge, and I know this is kind of what we're doing now, but this is a time casual, so it's an appropriate time <laughs> yeah, to do yeah. it. But sometimes it verges too much on the like, oh well, they played with boys and the billboards and all that sort of stuff, and not actual diving down into what tactics happened and, and the tactics and the yeah. football of things. So I think that's why having people like Emma there is great to actually, you know, keep everyone on the straight and narrow. Yeah, and well, I think that's on, the and uh, the Koi Gig podcast, the award-winning Koi Gig podcast, as well has been a huge part of that for people that as you said, there's an extra depth to the coverage of this team whereby, and I would have been guilty of it when we first started commentating on games of uh, big, you know, a lot of effort, a lot of effort, whereas Emma Byrne straight away, I remember that night when they were beating 1-0 at home against Sweden, Emma straight away after the game was highly critical of the Irish performance, that this was not at the time a great Swedish side, a great Swedish side in form, that they were too negative, that they sat too deep, uh, that the tactics were wrong which is not the way we have spoken about the women's team. And I think everybody now looks at the players and we can have a proper debate about what is Katie McCabe's best position. And they can watch her on Sky on a Saturday or a Sunday playing for Arsenal and look at her slight change of position there and wonder, well, is that the best spot for her at Ireland? So uh, I think like it's such a radical, radical transformation as to what has happened around the coverage of the team. And the players have played a massive part in that. I think, you know, they've been so giving of themselves to the public, to the media. Uh, like it's a very in-house thing, but like, you know, it's it's a diff- it's a very different gig that we do now compared to 10, 20 years ago. Like I, I, I probably was the, one of the last group to be in a dressing room after an All-Ireland final where you would do your interviews in about 07, uh, which was just the norm. Uh, access to players is so difficult to get these days. You know, after a men's game, you get three players are wheeled out uh, for 10 minutes, whereas the women's team players couldn't be more giving with their time. And I think, have to, and that's another thing they shouldn't have to do. It shouldn't be on their shoulders, the awareness and the promotion of the game. Uh, but it is, and they've embraced it, and it has worked brilliantly for them. And obviously Sky and Cavalry have got behind it magnificently as well. And the great thing is, like, the draw, my biggest concern was that they would end up with a draw that would be 3 o'clock in the morning. And mm-hmm. for all everybody's enthusiasm, people aren't getting up at 3 o'clock in the morning in millions. Whereas to be playing Australia on the first night yeah. at a very nice time on a Saturday in Ireland, you know, I think it's going to be arguably the event of the year in Irish sport in 2023. The script just couldn't have been set up any nicer. And like, famously enjoyed their celebrations after after the game as well. And, and like, Vera, Vera Powell, that's, that's... I think the word is infamously. <laughs> infamously sorry, of course. Um, and like, Vera Powell's, what she's been through as a, as a human being as well. And she was extremely emotional after the match. Uh, just what it meant to her. Like, a career highlight for her. And considering all that she's achieved as a manager in the game, probably sums up just how much it means. Yeah, like, I think for Vera, she 
like because she's worked within such interesting structures and say like the everything that the Dutch Federation have done around football is so interesting, especially when it comes to like men and women's football. And like she was with Scotland in their very early days when she said like that she, we had like a little porta cabin to work out of, and she was part. She all throughout her career, she has very much been part of teams that are on a development path and this is probably I think one of the first times with the national team anyways that she's really like tapped into something and properly tapped into the national attitude mm-hmm. and tipped them over to to that major tournament and tipped them over into that big competition and you know I, I mean we joke about we hear her on the TV and she, she's a straight talking woman and she, she's fiery and she doesn't mince her words in any way but she has got the respect of that team and she has managed to bring them to a place where they 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 trust her, they trust the situation they're in, they trust the setup that they're in. I mean, I know I've said things before about I question some of her choices, but like I can't question the fact that she did get us to a World Cup and no one has done that before. So she's doing something right, clearly. And I think she was probably that little bit of class and that little bit of professionalism that we needed to bring us to the next level and the one who is actually going to sit there in the same way when we were talking about the media and saying that you know sometimes we fall in the trap of just praising the players too much I think they needed that person to be like no 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 you're you're going to play Australia you're going to play Sweden and you're going to perform well against them I don't care if it takes us like five losses before that to get there we are going to get there and we are going to be good enough so she has brought that to us and I think that mentality in particular will stand to us going to the World Cup, providing we can still play some of those bigger teams in the next year or so before, yeah. well, that's less than a year, I suppose, nine months now, before we go. Because I think if we get caught playing like lower European teams or lower teams from wherever it is in the world, we might go backwards a little bit in that mentality. So I think getting some really good opposition over the next few months is going to be important. Yeah, that's one of the, the exciting things as we look back on 2022. We get to look forward to the World Cup now in July and it's something to really... To really a yeah, proper World Cup, a proper World say. Cup. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Hopefully no controversy over this World Cup. Uh, great stuff, Cathy. Definitely no controversy over that selection into the OTB um, time capsule. Republic of Ireland qualifying for the Women's World Cup for the first time in their history. Next, we are going... To, to up for Meave because Meave made history this year. Come in, Ashling O'Reilly. How are you? Hello, Shane. How's it going? Keeping well. Keeping well. So uh, for our time capsule picks for 2022, and it's very fair that you've opted for this as a Meath woman, and you kind of had to. Uh, but Meath winning the double and making history, winning the All Ireland Senior Ladies Football Championship. That's it, Shane. I think the the sign of a very good team to win in All Ireland, but a sign of a great team to be able to go and back it up. So. Absolutely. It's, it's well worth its merit to be in the time capsule this year. We did it last year when they won in 2021 and we're going to back in this year because they've done the double and it's just been unbelievable, you know, in me to, to see the, the difference in football, the effect it's had, I suppose, um, seeing the girls go on and do the double. It's just been unbelievable and they're a really, really special team. And I think they excited a lot of, a lot of fans across Ireland, not just within the women's game, but in the men's game too. And I think that's probably been the big difference. You know, I go anywhere now reporting on games and they say, what county are you from? And I'll say Mead and they'll say, geez, they, they have some team there. And you know, straight away, they're, they're talking about the women's team and they're talking about the brand of football they play. So it's, it's been unbelievable for the game, I think, as a whole, just to see it grow. And yeah, it's been, been very exciting in Mead and they're well worth going into the time capsule this year. It, it's amazing the difference 12 months makes because like when, when they beat the dubs, 
last year you're thinking this is a shock this is a bit of a surprise no one really expected this Meath coming up from from Intermediate and then winning the, the Senior All-Ireland but then the 12, year, 12, 12 months later beating Kerry by, by 9 points in the All-Ireland Final is not a surprise to anyone so they've gone from this is a shock to this is absolutely no surprise their dominance is is probably of no surprise to anyone within the county but uh, it's, it's, it's very special all the same Oh, absolutely. Um, they're definitely not a flash on a pan. And that's something that the girls, you know, constantly said last year. Anytime I met them after any of the games, you know, in the run up to making that final, you know, they said they want to be able to back it up. They want to be seen as a, as a great team. And as you said, Shane, there's a lot of work that's gone on behind the scenes um, in the county board, the coaching at club level, at underage level. You know, it has contributed to this. And they definitely didn't come out of nowhere. Um, they have been on a journey for four or five years. And I definitely think other counties now will be looking at them and taking lessons from them. Um, in 2017, you know, the, the management team came in of Eamon Murray, Paul Garrigan, and that's when it, it began. And at that point, they were in Division 3 and they were playing in intermediate football. And to see them go on and, and win the intermediate championship in, in 20. 20, then go on and win the senior in 21 and the, the double then in 22. And all while doing that, they, they've gone from division three to division two to division one in the league. So it's, it's been unbelievable. I just think even in sport as a whole, it's, it's just such a good story. And it's one that I think in Ireland, we definitely needed it to, to see women on such a journey like this. And I think it, it's really just pushed a lot of women in sport because it shows you that the underdog can do it. It is possible because there's a lot of uh, counties out there that would have thought that there's no way we can go on and win a senior, you know, all Ireland when we're playing in junior intermediate. But now they've seen me do it. And a lot of them talk that way. Look, Mead can do it. We, why can't we? So there, there's definitely a lot of belief there and it, it was just such a good story in that sense just for, for sport as a whole and for women in sport in Ireland and yeah, it, it's been some journey and we just hope that it can continue. I know there's controversy over all-star team picks at the best of times but I mean, this is your chance to vent. Like, Vicky Wall was was unbelievable in that final against Kerry. I think it was three points she kicked and then you look at the likes of Neve O'Sullivan and Orla Lally as well not making the, the all-star team I know it's only an individual award and maybe they don't care too much, but it still seemed a bit of a a bit of a miss that they that they left Vicky especially out of that team. Big time, I couldn't believe it. Couldn't believe it. I you know, I was keeping an eye on it all evening and I just could not believe that, that Vicky Wall and Nebo Sullivan as well, like she she got player of the game. I, I, in the All Ireland final, I think this was me, Erin Neve's best year. Like she was sensational this year. Um, oldest player on the team and she just drove them on. Like in that final, she was down in the back line and she was, she intercepted a pass. And by the time the ball had came back up the pitch, she'd sprinted up the line, got on the end of the ball and put it over the bar. And I just said, unbelievable. Like to have, you know, that fitness coming towards the end of an All-Ireland final. <clears throat> but no, I just think that the Vicky, that she didn't pick up an All-Star was outrageous, Shane. Like, she is the the main player of the women's game, let's be real. You know, when you talk about women's football, you talk about Vicky Wall. And she's been the face of it for, for the last two years now, especially. And for her not to pick up an All-Star was was very strange. Um, yeah, she she's really just, you know, put the, the game into a light that it has never been in before. And yeah, I think she will definitely have been shocked. I think there was a lot of people around me shocked and you could see the outpouring on Twitter and the likes. 
you know, from across the country. And it's not to take from any of the girls that picked up All-Stars because they're all deserving of them. But I just absolutely think that, that Vicky really deserved one there and and Neve as well. So, yeah, it definitely asked a, a few questions on, I suppose, how how they're picked because yeah a few people were saying it's picked by the media and that's that's not the case so yeah um definitely a lot of questions to be asked but it, it was very very strange i would say yeah agreed a bit of a blow that um vicky of course is overplaying in australia at the minute and, and lighting things up over there uh, by all accounts and um, eamon murray stepping down in august from his position davy nelson of course will be the man who's trying to trying to make this a three in a row team and that's that's a nice round number i mean me will only want to push on from here i guess ashley they, they'd love to push on now and they do have a lot of girls that have been on this panel for so long now that haven't really even got a run chain. Like there's so many girls in there that are there as part of the squad and they've known their job over the last number of years is to be a part of the squad and to, to push girls on in training and to push, you know, themselves on to be better players. But they have not got a run, you know, in many games, you know, Eamon has stuck to his team and he has his two, three, four girls that come off the bench. So there's a lot of girls there that are going to be hoping that this is their chance. And that's what it's all about, to be able to to give the next group of girls a chance to get in there. And they have massive talent. So, you know, hopefully we can push on. But of course, it was a massive blow to see the likes of Vicky Wall and Orla Lally. They've gone over to the AFLW. But they haven't ruled out coming back to, to play for Mead in 2023. They, they're not sure of how it's going to work out, you know, with scheduling. But they're they're still hopeful that they can do it. Um, Emma Troy as well. She's gone traveling. Um, Amy Leahy, she was out as well with an injury. She got injured in the final and she's gone traveling as well. So, yeah, there's a number of girls that aren't going to be there next year. Then you have the change in the management team. And I think Eamon Murray and, and, and Paul Gargan in particular, like he is the mastermind behind this team. Like him as a coach, he's been sensational of what he's done. And he's going in with the, the Mead men's team now as part of the coaching team there with Colm O'Rourke. So it'll be very interesting to see what he can do in there. But um, yeah, I think it's going to be a fresh start for, for Mead ladies and the, the talent within Mead. You've seen the knock-on effect. It's It's been unbelievable, like just around the clubs. And everybody is, you know, going to get on that me team now. And yeah, I, I just, I'm hopeful. It might take another year or so to really have that transition period and get the girls in and up to up to speed of senior football. But um, yeah, I'd never, never rule them out because they, they've been an unbelievable team. So entertaining. And when you thought they were down and out in games earlier on this year, they just come back and they they pull, pull a win out of nowhere. And when you have people like Emma Duggan on the team who can do just that, like she did against Galway in the All-Ireland quarterfinal, last kick of the game, she looked up at the clock, the buzzer was about to go, she knew she had to kick the ball or that was it, and she kicks it over from out near the sideline to put them through, like, unbelievable. So if you have people like that on the team that are still there, still playing, um, yeah, Mead have a massive chance next year. Hundred percent, and it remains to be seen. We'll, we'll watch with keen interest to see if they can push on and get that three in a row. Definitely a worthy uh, inclusion in our OTBAM time capsule for twenty twenty two. Great stuff, Ashley. As always, thanks a million. Thanks a million, Shane. So next on our list, we've done the All Ireland football final with Nathan. We've done the All Ireland hurling final and Cody's last game. I guess thrown in there as well with Jer. We've done the Women's World Cup with Kathleen and the qualification for the first time, and now we've done Meads two in a row with uh, with Ashley O'Reilly, Tommy Rooney is with us. Tommy, how are you? 
Shane, happy Christmas. Happy Christmas uh, in the uh, true festive spirit uh, this week, of course, in between Christmas and New Year's. Uh, you're opting for a for a very specific moment in the All-Ireland Senior Football Championship year. Yes, Shane. And to be honest, as a Mead man, of course, Mead's two in a row merits inclusion. Of course, that incredible shootout between David Clifford and Shane Walsh merits inclusion. I'm a football snob, but I'll even say thumbs up to the hurling final. Joe mm. Gilroy had a good pick. But Shane Hannan, if you were to put one moment from 2022 into a time capsule, it has to be Sean O'Shea's iconic free to win that game, that All-Ireland semi-final against Dublin. We'll get to the context in a minute. <laughs> we'll get to the moment itself. But here's the post-match reaction from Paddy Andrews and James O'Donoghue chatting to Ashley O'Reilly on the steps of Crow Park with the seagulls swelling around them. I was in Turles 22 years ago and for Morris Fitz's point and one of the most iconic not just for Kerry one of the most iconic GA scores of all time I think Sean Shea scored there I was happy enough for him to actually take it I was like he's 55 yards out there's a really stiff breeze we could see that into into Hill 16 he probably has another 15 yards on it it, it is in the circumstances 12 years ago we were here and Stephen Cluxton hit a free into that that goal in a similar situation to win break the duck I suppose and win Dublin's first at Ireland you just feel like that kick we'll be seeing it for years to come it's an incredible way to win the game for Kerry they've probably got away with it in the end haven't been probably the much better team certainly in the first half but you can't understate what a massive win that is mentally for Kerry then coming to the all final finalist favourites in two weeks time well Paddy, in fairness, you were saying, leave him at it, leave him at it, leave him, throw a leg at it. And because there had been loads of wides into that goal, into the Hill goal, Dublin in the first half missed four, Kilkenny missed one, Fenton missed one, Coslo, and kind of easy scores. Same with Kerry in the second half, Spillane missed one, Clifford missed one in there. So when Shawnee puts it down that far out, you're thinking, he has to deal with a, a couple of crosswinds. And to hit it, if you see the, the angle from behind the goal... Incredible. He started it miles out and just whipped it in. And you can see Comerford's inside in the goal shaking the post, <laughs> trying to get it to hit the post. Desperate but, times yeah. call for desperate measures. Desperate times call for desperate measures. And Evan Comerford had a key role to play in that game, Shane. Um, he had saved Sean O'Shea's penalty in the first half. And that is part of the context of this. He had stayed on the ground for about 10 minutes and probably rattled him as well. Uh, it was one of those moments in that game. But like the context here, Shane, in the 75th minute, the, the clock is in the red. The game is up. Five minutes of injury time. The dubs have gone for Kerry's throat. They've come back from come back from the dead, really. They're inspired. And next thing, Shawnee O'Shea puts that ball down. David Clifford calls him over, I think, and, and hands it to him after he wins the free. And O'Shea puts it down. Like, he's not 45 yards out. He's 55 yards out, Shane. Mm. Maybe Rory Began does it. <laughs> we know that Niall Morgan had done it before. But in that moment, when your team have wilted, and you're supposed to be this new generation of All-Ireland winners and you haven't done it yet. You've fallen short in 19. You've been caught by Cork in 20. You've fallen short against Tyrone in 21. This Kerry team hadn't done it. And this was the moment that allowed them to fulfil their prophecy, their legacy, and Sean O'Shea delivered. And that is why this is the most important moment in this time capsule. You got you got the chance, the very... Uh good chance of seeing seeing Shawnee's free taking up close and his routine mm. and talking him through it like I, I remember hearing him uh, talking as well about the process and how he tries to imagine yes. himself maybe not in Croke Park in front of what 70, 80,000 odd people like it's it, how a footballer is able to do that in an amateur sport is beyond me yeah that was class I love that quote um, I think it was you know you spend your whole life 
down in Khmer, practicing with no one watching, imagining that you're in Crow Park. And next thing you're in Crow Park with everyone watching you, and all you got to do is imagine you're back in Khmer taking those shots on your own. And that's that's what he did. He stuck to the process. He put that ball down. There was a the mad win in Crow Park today. Were you in Croker that day? For the semi-final? No, I was there for the final just. Missed the semi-final. You were there for the final. and So I was in Croker that day and I was, I was, you know, in the Hogan stand and the noise was just, it was one of the greatest sporting occasions I've ever been at because the dubs, they really felt like this was, you know, maybe their last chance. I think the fans really got behind them. They knew the supporters needed that extra or the players needed that extra bit from the fans. There was just crazy noise and just when O'Shea put it down, you're looking at it and you're like, I have it on here in loop in front of me. It's too far, Shane. It's too far <laughs> out. After 76 minutes, and like, O'Shea had put himself through it in that game. Like, he would really got stuck in. And there's a brilliant footage from behind the goal, from a fan footage, and I love fan footage of GA games, but there's an incredible shot from over O'Shea's shoulder from the far stand. And it shows him arcing the ball, probably 10 yards wide, to allow it to get the proper curl to come back in. And I think that was the clip where I first realised what Evan Comerford was doing, shaking the posts. Like, everything is against him. He's kicking it into the hill in Dublin's patch. And if that game goes to extra time, the Dubs are beaten. <laughs> and Carrier are beating Dockett. And you don't know whether Carrier, well, they probably would eventually win on Ireland. But, like, it becomes a stain on that team that they've they've fallen short again and again. So... Just such an iconic moment. And yeah, we, we had that shooting masterclass with Shane Walsh and Sean O'Shea in Vincent's and it was Savage seeing it up front and Catra Murphy had set out the cones that day and I feel like she created the toughest shooting challenge we've ever seen. There was a strong wind against the lad and I think it ended up being maybe 3-2. I can't remember who won it. But, you know, these are guys that have practiced these shots over and over and over. And I was in the Hogan that day, as I said, and I put up the video and I went searching through my Twitter earlier on to try and find that video because I wanted to have a look back at it. And I searched Sean O'Shea and the amount of freeze from clutch freeze from Sean O'Shea that I tweeted. There's one from Navin out in the sideline outside of the right boot off the ground. Doesn't make sense how he put it over the bar. There's a sideline a couple of months before that outside of the boot. There's that free earlier on this year for Ken Mayer Shamrocks to save them really against Austin Stacks and keep them in senior football with Donahue in his ear. Like unbelievable stuff. This is just one of these footballers that has delivered time and time again. And what is he? 23, 24? Mm-hmm incredible stuff it's scary it's unbelievable and uh, yeah one of those moments that, that really lit up the championship and you're, you're thinking yeah if that goes to extra time it could have gone either way and, and there's the famous photo that Ray McManus was in with me from Sportsfile recently and yes. on a Saturday and he's taught the, even the front image of their of their um, annual book this year is is Shawnee and the lads celebrating running around like like cows been let out of the into the field in spring do you know and just yeah. that r- raw emotion as soon as the, the, the ball went over and you realised that was it just incredible yeah I know, I think actually, it's probably in it, but I think James, no, it wouldn't be in it, but I think James Crombie from Info yeah. um, took that also, that incredible fo- photo where he, he refocuses the camera. <laughs> and so you have one shot, which is O'Shea's face in absolute, you know, focus, looking at the ball, placing on the ground. And then he obviously did some setting on the camera. don't know exactly what he did, but you can see the people behind in the crowd and all the different reactions. Some people obviously had the phones up trying to capture the moment. Some people were just with mouths open, not believing it. Some Dublin fans were closing their eyes. Kerry fans were sure he was going to score it. It was just one of those moments that like uh, defined the year in sport. Yeah, incredible. Tommy, you've called it, you've said it's it's the most worthy. Uh, everyone's going to argue for their own ah, point. It's, it's one of them anyway. Yeah, it's yeah. one of them, certainly. Tommy, great stuff as always. Thanks a million. 
Thanks, Shane. Appreciate it. Good stuff, Tom Yerini, presenter, of course, of the Gaelic Football Pod on OTB. And he has put Sean O'Shea's winning free for Kerry against Dublin in the All-Ireland Senior Football Semi-Final this year into OTB AM's time capsule for the year in sport 2022. Cameron Hill, how are you? Not too bad, Shane. How are you? Very good. We're getting some uh, some serious additions to the time capsule this year. And uh, you are opting for the rugger. For Ireland beating New Zealand, uh, beating the All Blacks in a series, which was quite the achievement of 2022. A huge achievement, you know. I mean, we've done a, we've done a lot over the last couple mm. of years, beating the All Blacks in Chicago, of course, beating them in 2018 at home, um, beating them again in 2021 at home. But this this felt different, you know. Like as uh, I always feel that okay, home victories are huge, but. We don't have World Cups at home, mm. you know. We don't host them, so all of these big games at World Cups take place away from home in hostile atmospheres, like um, what we're going to see next year in France. And to go down to New Zealand and lose the first test, yeah, um, by some some score, yeah. like forty two nineteen, and then to come back and you know the atmosphere in that camp mustn't have been great because we lost against the Marys in the first game too. To come back. Win in the second test in the perspex, the glass house as they call yeah. it, in the Forset Bar, and then also win in Wellington to have some Wellington redemption because we lost to Wales, of course, in 2011. Like that is that's huge. It's almost like the um, the shackles were off, was off, were off, the pressure was off once the first test was out of the way and we'd lost. It was like right, well, let's just go and do something here. Let's perform, and with the performance came the result. Like to go and beat them then after, as you say that her start to the series makes it all the better absolutely and I mean it, the second test didn't it, well it started in a similar way to the first in that we scored really early but we backed it up this time <laughs> like uh, we scored through Keith Earls in that first test and you know we were like oh we can we can start to dream here and then it just kind of fell apart we just didn't take our chances and New Zealand as they often do took all their chances that we gave them um, and then we just pulled it all together in the second test and I missed the second test unfortunately I had to listen to it in the car um, but watch the third test in my <laughs> amazing what a match amazing a really you know on a knife edge on a knife edge the whole way through yeah. we scored a couple of tries they scored a couple of tries and then you know we talked about the Shawnee O'Shea um, free kick and you know the heroes coming from likely places the most unlikeliest of heroes and that's not to cast any aspersions on Rob Herring, but to come from the back of that mall <laughs> and just go, ah, yeah, sure, why not? Let's go for it. Yeah, and score that try, which pushes us over the line and gets the win. Ah, that's one, of the mo- that's one of the moments of 2022 that, that shouldn't be forgotten. Hugely, like, yeah. That, and, and is in danger of being forgotten because of, as I said, all the other moments in the list. But surely Rob Herring's try has to be up there. Oh, it's iconic. Iconic. What a moment of Will of the Wisp. <laughs> and I mean we've had the November series now you know three wins from three but up until the series in New Zealand I feel like this year for Irish rugby was going to be a question of what if yeah I mean I was there in the Stade de France in February when Ireland played France and we came so so close and they scored two tries yeah. and we came back into that game and were it not for Hugo Keenan his kick going a bit awry and giving it back to France who kicked it out, we might have won that game. Then I was in Marseille for the Champions Cup final when we played La Rochelle, and that was a case of so close and yet so far. <laughs> so to do it this time, to finally go down there and lose the first test and go, oh, this 
this could get ugly very this fast south, yeah. and still turn it around that I think you know I mean, we talk about World Cup World Cup World Cup next year but um, that feels like it's a significant moment yeah and that, that's a point you make as well the fact that we won the November Internationals mm. then afterwards albeit the Fiji game and the Australia game weren't that emphatic uh, especially the Fiji game performance but it wasn't our strongest team but that kind of uh, for good or for bad heads us into a World Cup year being really good Really yeah. conf- like I don't know if that's a good thing. We'll see, obviously, the Six Nations has to come between now and the World Cup, but I mean we're we're certainly in a good position, and I don't know if that adds pressure to the players or if this group of players feel pressure, like like in years gone past where we just can't get past that quarterfinal stage. But hopefully, it doesn't become too all encompassing just before the World Cup that we're like, we're the number one team in the world. We're brilliant. No, and you know what it is like. We've a really strong, solid squad from one to fifteen. I mean, we've. We probably lack some depth in certain areas, but we seem pretty strong there. But what's, what's really encouraging for me is that there's a lot of players putting their hand up as a kind of game changer. Yeah. I mean, you look back at that France game in February, um, that game looked like it was going to run away from us. Stade de France that day was a real, you know, cauldron. You, just, <laughs> you felt this is, this is going to get too much. Who turns it around? Mac Hansen catches the ball off the kick. Suddenly we're back in that game. Again, Josh a relatively unlikely hero, hero again. Like, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And came out of nowhere. Um, Josh van der Fleer, how many performances has he put in this year? How many Man of the Match rewards has he got this year? <laughs> because he's been able to sort of change the momentum of the game. And it felt in November we had Jimmy O'Brien coming to the fore as maybe someone who might do that for us next year. Yeah. And who knows, Jack Crowley could be the person. He seems a bit more swashbuckling than the rest of our options back of 10 options. Yeah. So it's really encouraging, but you know the centerpiece of that year this year will be that series in New Zealand and yeah it'll yeah. live long in the memory regardless and I guess it's kind of bookended as well towards the end of the year in November where you have Josh van der Fleer being named World Rugby Player of the Year which just is testament to the 12 months that he had and it was well deserved and you know to only be the third Irish player after Keith Wood and Johnny Sexton to pick up that award kind of put the sheen on the on the 12 months that, that was for Irish rugby it did it did and I suppose you know Johnny Sexton won it in 2018, the year out from the World Cup. Yeah, fair. Again, we're always focused on this World Cup, you know, this obsession we have. Mm. And maybe the only lesson we learned this year is that happiness is a potent yet fleeting high. But um, it does, I I kind of feel a bit more optimistic now. I do, you know, Irish rugby has been a series of just not getting there in the end. And I kind of feel like it's been, I don't know, like... I don't want to be too harsh, but like a, a deadbeat dad who always promises they're going to pick up the kid and never does. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, there is a reason to be cheerful this year because I don't think we've peaked. Mm. I think there's still plenty of improvement. Those wins we ground out in November yeah. and that, that could be how we get through in a World Cup, but there's still potential to go and reach our zenith. It's a fair point. Mm. The nature of those performances might actually stand to us, the, the tight games and the itty-bitty uh, performances. Uh, Cameron Hill, very... Well done, and uh, an excellent addition, I think, to our O2B AM time capsule. And happy Christmas. And happy Christmas, of course. Way. It's up here. We, we, we can still say it up until, what, first, second week of January, maybe? Uh, I don't know when's acceptable. I think early March. Early March. Early. <laughs> <laughs> Let's go for it. Let's just keep saying it to early March. You heard it from Cameron. If you hear me saying happy Christmas to you, it's because Cameron told me to. Uh, we've, got a, we've got a video clip here, I think, as well, to, before we finish on the rugby. Uh, Alan Quinlan summing up, basically, the series as a whole. I think he does it really well, so we maybe are. we'll throw that out. To win a series here, just an amazing... Amazing, amazing uh, situation for the players and uh, and the coaching staff. They deserve huge credit, given that you know the way things panned out in that first test and uh, 
the response. The midweek team, team winning against the Maoris, it just couldn't be any better. Three out of five games won for Ireland, I suppose. Um, we knew it was going to be a tough situation, but I think they've surpassed their expectations and just been been amazing right across the board, you could say. Um, to play three test mass matches in, in three weeks in a trot like this for the vast majority of the players and uh, the energy they found there, particularly at the end of the game, to hang on, to come up with some big plays. And you said it in your, at the start, the way they played in that first half was just incredibly impressive. Uh, three tries, uh, they came out, started brilliantly again and, you know, no big controversial incidents. I think they'll, you know, maybe we'll hear about the Andrew Porter tackle and Brody Retallick. Uh, Wayne Barnes gave him a yellow. Could it have been a red? Well, of course it could have been. Um, but I think the, it was probably the right call. Um, but if you got a red card, you know, they wouldn't, you, you know, it's one of those ones that can go either way. Uh, Wayne Barnes said there was no forward force that he kind of accepted the tackle. Um, giving me a yellow card and I'd be interested to hear what Ian Foster says about that after the game but just the effort out of the players to stay going to really believe they could do it here and um, just it's 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 surreal it's surreal um, 24 years since New Zealand have lost two home games on the trot and that was against South Africa and Australia so Ireland have broken all kinds of records here and, and, and achieved just the unthinkable really James Lowe said it after the game he was interviewed he said it's just unimaginable what's after happening and um, it's really special for the players they put in some some shift here for the last couple of weeks and they got their just rewards and as you said as well it's it's history it's the, probably the greatest two of the greatest results that, that Ireland have ever achieved because they've never been here and um, I suppose when we pick through the bones of it you could argue and say that New Zealand were, were really poor but Ireland made them look really poor in the first half and uh, the reaction here would be will be uh, so much pressure on the coach and staff for New Zealand and a lot of question marks. But it's about Ireland now and uh, they were just amazing and absolutely brilliant a couple of weeks. Yep, that was Alan Quinlan with John Duggan after Ireland uh, had beaten the All Blacks again. That was in Wel- from Wellington and uh, as Quinny said, 24 years since the All Blacks had lost twice away from or uh, at home and uh, John Duggan has joined me in studio because that was the addition of Ireland's win in New Zealand to the OTB AM time capsule John you're going to the sport of golf and why wouldn't we do you want, do you want to start on the the negative the live golf emergence as your 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 first port of call for for 2022 or how do you want to how do you want to put it well I think it's been a great year for Irish golf Shane but it's not been a great year for the game of golf. Mm. I watched the Seve Ballesteros documentary recently on Sky, and it's very, very good and very well put together and speaks to his family and speaks to all his peers and his competitors from his great career, the late Seve Ballesteros, who passed away a decade ago. And the meaning of Seve was really that he brought European golf to America, the first European to win the Masters in 1980, and grew up playing golf on a beach with a one iron or an iron and had no money and was a caddy and like grew up with nothing and, and made it to the very top of, of the game and when he played with Jose Mario Lathabal at the Ryder Cup there was no money involved it was all about European pride and taking it to the Americans and winning and capturing our hearts which he did when winning those five major championships including the Open three times and it was all about meaning it was all about purity it was all about the competition the competitive nature of sport and when I just see what live golf is about, which is about effectively hard power by uh, nature states Saudi Arabia to uh, once again uh, enhance their 
um, footprint around the world in terms of their influence and using sport as a tool for that. And Greg Norman, who's not very good ambassador in my mind for them, um, because like he tried to set up a world tour 30 years ago, he was rebuffed. And I think there's a lot of resentment around that. And when I just think about Liv and what it's doing to fracture the game. Like players can do whatever they want, uh, but if the game should be driven by meaning and sport should be driven by meaning in the competition, I don't think that's a too much of an idealistic thing to say. If it's driven by money, first of all, I think there's a vulgarity to that, which I think is then leads to a disconnect between uh, the players that you would see as heroes and stars and what they're actually in it for, which is just uh, to feather their own nests. Like Gray McDowell said at the time that he was, they were looking to grow the game, and we all know that wasn't true. It was all about looking to grow their own bank balances. Um, so I, I think the fact the fracturing of it and, and the, the fact that Cameron Smith, who won the Open Championship so spectacularly with the 64 in the final round, as said Andrew Shane, then took the um, opportunity to go to live with over 100 million. It's very hard to turn down. And you can't really blame independent contractors, but I think they've been short-sighted and I think that they've been sold a pup not in terms of the money or, or or the lifestyle they're going to have, but just in terms of what sport should mean. It shouldn't be about money first. It should be about competition and purity and legacy first, uh, not money. But great year for Irish golf, but not a great year for the game. And I'd worry for the future. I think there needs to be compromised in some way because I think one the the people who play any sport are completely disconnected from the people who watch it who might not earn that much money. Mm. And it's all about money. And it's all all the talk is just about money and how much a player would have earned for playing in an exhibition. It's, it's really just ivory tower stuff, and uh, there, there's then a remove from the people who um, grew up loving the game. Yeah, it's 2022 seemed to be the year that taught all of us and, and people who weren't aware of how removed some golfers are and how obsessed with money some golfers are. It kind of cast a dark cloud over golf in 2022. Like We probably, historically speaking, look back on 2022 as... A dark one for golf because of the lift tour, because of what happened, because of the split. I mean, it, a lot of negativity. And uh, like when you see golfers like Rory McIlroy standing up, and he had a big year uh, in terms of you know improvements to his game. It's been eight years since he last won a major, but he stood up so eloquently and so strongly when he needed to as well, John. Well, uh, candor among sports stars, especially at the level that Rory McIlroy is at, is rare. You might get it after their career ends with Michael Jordan and that kind of thing. But Rory McIlroy did everything but win the major. Uh, he was the ambassador for truth in the game. Uh, he was the ambassador in terms of his play to get to the world number one ranking again. Uh, he improved his wedge play significantly in his putting. And he became one of the very few players to have won both the PGA Tour money list, effectively the FedEx Cup and the European Tour money list. Uh, rankings uh, with the race to Dubai as is now known as the DP World Tour rankings the Harry Varden Trophy so effectively he's the US number one the European number one and the world ranked top player so naturally you would think that a major will follow but it will be nine years it's not easy that the Masters the only one he hasn't won is always the first one he had a brilliant final round chain to 64 to finish second behind Scotty Scheffler then he went to the PGA was leading after the first round had two bad rounds in the middle then rallied but it wasn't enough Justin Thomas won that. The third major, the US Open, once again in the third round, it just kind of got away from him and Matt Fitzpatrick won that. And then at the Open, I thought it was his, the 150th Open. All the storylines were written with Greg Norman and Phil Mickelson not turning up at the at the dinner um, that week because the RNA really didn't want them there at creating a, a circus. And uh, Rory, was he had, a, had it in the palm of his hand and shot a conservative round of 70 in the final round and Cameron Smith overtook him and... 
Um, it is very, very sad that Cameron Smith and Rory can't be going head-to-head down, down a stretch in golf anytime soon. The actual, what it does, this live thing, is actually enhances the majors. They do have to sort the world ranking points. What the impact of that will be in terms of the live golfers? Will they begin to slide down the world rankings? Like, you'll have the likes of Smith will get five-year exemptions. Um, but it would be quite a shame if you don't have players at the top of the game like Bryson DeChambeau, Patrick Reed, Brooks Kepka involved in majors. But that's their decision that they've taken. And you can't be in and out at the same time. You can't, oh, well, we'll play the PGA Tour. You're either in or you're out. You're going to take the money. You need to go. And Ferrari was pretty steadfast about that. And what's happened is, and maybe the PGA Tour were very asleep at the wheel. Maybe they can't compete with the kingdom, a nation state. But Tiger Woods had a meeting. Rory was there. And I would expect that the PGA Tour professionals will be a lot richer than they have been because there'll be a lot of equity involved. And they're looking to maybe build or safeguard their tour for the next 10 to 15 years. How many more defections there will be, I don't know. But I, I would, I'd be very surprised, Shane, if Rory doesn't win a major next year, mm. given what he's done and the way he's playing. Yeah, touch wood, he can keep that form going. Uh, so in terms of the time capsule, John, finally, like we've put the Live, live Golf Tour in there. Rory's yes. on and off course, um, uh, I guess, excelling in the world. And uh, maybe also we should mention Seamus Power. And yeah, I, think, I, I think we should year. put Live Golf in the time capsule. I think we should put Irish Golf in the time capsule. Fair. Rory, you've touched upon. Uh, like Portia Carrington won the US Senior Open, won a four wins this year. And he was pipped for the Open, the Senior Open up at Glen Eagles by Darren Clark. So you have Portia Carrington winning the US Open Senior on the champion story of Darren Clark winning the, the Open. Uh, you've Leona Maguire now 11th in the world, second twice, won her first tour event, uh, second at the Tour Championship. But most impressive about Leona was the fact that she played so well at the Open at mm-hmm. Muirfield. She finished in a tie for fourth. She consolidated that solid run at the Solheim Cup last year, that extraordinary Solheim Cup with a with a really solid season. A major, I think, is in the offing for Leona Maguire from Cavan. And Seamus Power, as you said there, won on the Tour. And Shane Larry went bogey-free to win the biggest uh, tournament this side of the pond, as they say in America, the BMW PGA Championship at Wentworth, a tournament he'd been playing well in the past. But to go and win that under pressure from the likes of Rory was really impressive. So Irish golf's in a great place, Shane. The game is not in such a great place. But we've got a Ryder Cup next year. And for those who turn up, Sergio, Ian Poulter, Lee Westwood won't be there. But it's time for it to turn a page for new golfers like Rasmus Hoigo, Nicola Nikolai Hoigo, um, Robert McIntyre and, and Rory. And I think that people will move on. But you'd hope that um, the game gets back in touch with the people who support us, who go to the tournaments and who watch it on TV and... and uh, deliver all the money for these players mm, here here that's our latest addition to the O to BAM time capsule so the uh, the year that was for Irish golf and uh, an excellent year it was and uh, hopefully Rory as John says can push on and of course the live tour emergence John thanks a million Great okay stuff. Shane thank you so uh, we've got a video to bring you now as we uh, wait the next edition this will give you a clue as to what it's going to be so it's uh, Kelly Harrington she, he, she was in studio with uh, Richie McCormick speaking about Katie Taylor being her hero like I mean, it's it's in the book. I, I I've, I've said it in the book about Katie. I'd say about how I wouldn't challenge her, like how I never had the confidence. I'm saying it now, how I never had the confidence. You know, I have confidence now because of what I have achieved, because of my training, because I I, I stepped up and I was like, right, let's see, mm-hmm. you know. But and I also like it is what it is. Do you know what I mean? That that's my experience. I don't I don't have anything else to say about it. You know, uh, and what I will say is though that. Katie Taylor is a fantastic athlete, a, a really great role model to anybody, man, woman, child. It doesn't matter to mm. me, you know what I mean? And I've never, ever had any uh, bad feelings towards Katie. Like, she's been my role model. How could you, like, know. you know? It, that, apart from a moment of, like, tension where she's cheering on somebody else in the elites, I think it was. Like, yeah, that's it. Like, like, that's it. But yeah. that's, like, 
that's a micro some snapshot of but that's of my role model you know that for me it's like oh my god like my role model's in someone else's corner like yeah. I like that's like a heartbreaking moment for me do you know what I mean at that stage because literally like all the pictures of my whole bedroom now not sounds really weird but like she's my role model like she's like people have pictures of David Beckham and Cristiano Ronaldo on the wall. Do you know what I mean? Like she was, like she was my role model growing up. And then next of all, she's in Alana's corner cheering for her. I was like, Oh my god! Do you know what I mean? Like you're my role model, like not hers. You know, but uh, I've always thought, like I've always, I've always thought Katie is great. You know. Yeah, Kelly Harrington studio there with Richie McCormick discussing why Katie Taylor is her hero and the latest addition to the OTBM time capsule is in the world of boxing. Phil Egan, how are you? Very well. How are you doing? What are you? What are you? What are you sticking in here? So it, it was a it was a good year for Irish boxing. It has to be said, a very good year. So what what what's what specifically has made the cut? Well, we'll stick with Katie Taylor. Very good. Katie Taylor, Amanda Serrano, Madison Square Garden, April thirtieth, first female fight to headline the iconic boxing venue, which has had fights for one hundred and forty one years, and by God, it delivered. <laughs> it was an unbelievable fight. The night watching it, but I've watched it back and it's just an incredible fight. See, a lot's been made of women's boxing with the the two-minute rounds, but what that does give is just a ferocious pace. (laughs) And it just never, it never gave up. It it just, it was relentless. There was a little dip for Serrano because she emptied the tank in the fifth and sixth round where she thought she could get Taylor out of there. Katie came back and finished strongly, but a brilliant fight just even after the fight was over the two boxers realised what they had just delivered. I think they both need, like, for Katie's career, and when you look back in her professional fighting career, you need to have rivals. And, like, for, for Katie to have had Amanda Serrano and vice versa can only elevate them both. Absolutely. And we see it so often in boxing where we talk about potential fights and fights we want to see and they don't happen. Mm. But this fight eventually happened. Hopefully in 2023, we'll see it again. Wouldn't it be great if we saw it in Crow Park? Yeah. I mean, that is all that is missing now from from Katie Taylor's career is that big fight at home. It has to happen, doesn't yeah. it? Yeah. Uh, look, if she if she walked away after beating Serrano on the 30th of April, she's given all she has to give. We, we just heard from Kelly Harrington there, the legacy that Katie Taylor has left. Mm-hmm. We, we've already seen the, the, the rewards of it, the lice of Kelly Harrington. We had two more world champions in 2022 with Lisa O'Rourke and Amy Broadhurst, which, I mean, you were watching that even in the space of half an hour, two world champions. And this is just starting to become a bit of the norm because of Katie Taylor, the doors that she's opened. We just, we're not surprised. Like when O'Rourke no. and Broadhurst happened, you're thinking, obviously they got the reception and they come back into Dublin yeah. Airport and they get plenty of media coverage as they sh- so should. But it's almost just a given now that we have world champions in boxing, which, yeah. which shouldn't it shouldn't be taken as gra- uh, for granted. No, absolutely not. But it, it kind of was almost like a throwback to the Barcelona Olympics, where you saw Wayne McCullough and Michael Carruth fight mm. pretty much like right after each other, and here we were watching two world champions. But this is all because of Katie Taylor. I, I mentioned Broadhurst actually. Katie Taylor used Broadhurst as a sparring partner for the Serrano fight because Serrano obviously being a southpaw Katie hasn't fought that many southpaws and it was to get the style and yeah you could see Katie had success in the first few rounds with a few left hands and right hands and then Serrano when when the bell rings the first bell rings you're always kind of curious to see who's going to 
take mm. the center of the ring and it was Serrano. Yeah. Like we knew Serrano had the, the more power. We knew Katie was the better technical boxer. So clash of styles and said there was moments where Katie was in trouble, especially the fifth round. But then towards the end of the fight, she finished so strongly that you wonder if it was a 12 round fight, mm. would Katie have maybe finished Serrano? But just a brilliant all action fight and you know, it, it holds up as one of the, the best fights of the year. So it, it's got to the stage now that the standard of women's boxing has gone so high now that the fights aren't really categorised now as women's fights anymore. Yeah, and, and that's that's what we want. That's what we want, exactly. And like there, it, there is the rivalry element. There is the fact that it's a historical setting for boxing, as you say, as well. But it's also just... I mean, you probably watched when you watched it back. Did you see it in a different way as a, as when you had watched the fight live? Like, was it always the same in terms of round per round? Ah, it was completely different. Sure, it's total emotion the first but, time. That, well, that's it. You have to detach yourself. And the night that it was on, it was on about three o'clock in the morning. Yeah, and you're watching it. I always think as well with boxing, you can see that people get swayed by the commentary. Mm-hmm. So that fight was on the zone. And the DAZN commentary team, which included Jessica McCaskill, mm. who Katie has fought before and she beat her in York Hall and McCaskill thought the fight was a lot closer than the judges thought. And, you know, she, it was clear that she was kind of on the Serrano side. Yeah. And the scorecard went up of their uh, their score, Chris Mannix, and it was he had Katie 5-1 down at the halfway stage. So people watching that at home then get freaked yeah. out. Because they're thinking she's lost it. People who aren't experts in boxing maybe are going yeah. off the commentary. It's so hard to judge. Like I, I, even looking at the judges' scoring when when they when they called them out, it was obviously a split decision. Mm. But some of those rounds are really close. I the way I kind of scored it, I said I watched it back, and you are better off watching these things back with the sound down. Yeah, and actually, I know something that came up during the year with Eddie Howe, the Newcastle manager, talking about when he looks back at matches, maybe if he's doing a bit of research in a team, he'll watch it with the sound down. Because <laughs> he doesn't want to be swayed by something that is said in the in the commentary. He wants to just look at it for himself. But the first three rounds I would have given to Katie, then maybe the next three you're given to Serrano, and then the last three to Katie. I th- maybe even rounds three and seven, you could flip them. Yeah. But that's how tight it is. And because they're, they're 10 round fights with two minutes, like you really can't have any time off. Like mm. you just have to go hell for leather for, for 20 minutes. This little period between Christmas and New Year, we're allowed to kind of look ahead to 2023. And I guess, like, and Eddie Hearn very forcefully touched on it, the fact that the Dublin fight is on everyone's lips now, but like from her perspective, from Kitty's perspective, it surely has to happen in terms of, as you say, legacy. Yeah, absolutely. I said the legacy is safe regardless of what, yeah. what, uh, what happens between now and the time Katie Taylor decides to hang up her gloves but it's something that I think that a lot of people in Ireland would feel that Katie Taylor deserves for all that she's done for the country and for all that she's done for women's sport women's boxing that she would get her her big night in Dublin and the biggest is Crow Park Mm. and if it's Serrano that would be unbelievable if it's not Serrano as long as they get somebody that can put up a good fight yeah. Katie Taylor I mean you still want a, a big name there I mean there's been there's a, there's a few names mentioned but I think Serrano is the one that we want and Eddie Hearn was a bit more vocal about it 
after the Carvajal fight, when mm. the fight Katie Taylor had after she beat Serrano, where straight after the fight he's saying, "Yeah, Crow Park has to happen." So imagine the atmosphere. It would like, be yeah, it would be unbelievable. And you know, even the night at, in Madison Square Garden, you're watching the Katie Taylor come into the ring, and you're like, "I just hope that she she delivers." And you know, we, there would have been a few doubts even watching the fight, where you're mm. thinking, "This isn't going well." I mean, she is in trouble in the fifth round, but then you kind of see why. Why do we ever doubt Katie Taylor? She came up with the goods when she needed to. But just everything about that night in New York, the crowd, you know, there was such a, a big Irish following there. There was a lot of Puerto Ricans there as well for, for Serrano. The the locals obviously probably were on the Serrano side of things as well. And when they, they're in the ring and they're doing the announcing before the fight, Brian Peters is obviously in Katie's corner and mm. he just has this big grin on his face because he's like this is unbelievable <laughs> this is what we want this is what what Eddie Hearn and Katie Taylor talked about when she went professional can Katie Taylor deliver these nights and she has and then at the end just that relief when you know the first score is given out the Canadian judge gives it to Serrano mm. there's a few boos and you're like then the next one is Taylor and then it's all down to the last judge and obviously David Diamante the the MC gives the dramatic pause and oh. you're like who is he and then when he says and still just the noise relief and as well absolutely and it's just it's incredible and I think the even after what Serrano has just lost the fight she says her quote was women can sell women can fight and we put on a hell of a show and mm-hmm. it really was it was if people need to refresh their memories it's well worth watching the full fight is up on, on YouTube mm, and you can watch it back and yeah it's just brilliant and I think some of the cornering from Serrano corner wasn't great at times it, they seem to be struggling at times they mentioned what round are we in yeah and there was one stage as well with two rounds to go one of her team said yeah you've got six minutes to go now I don't know if that's slip up on their behalf that they think there's three rounds left or they think there's two rounds and mm. they're still counting them as three minute rounds but yeah it was um, quite the night in, in New York and look I think they have to do it again and if they're going to do it again why not Crow Park 100% 100% agreed and I think for people as as you say Phil people have a time over Christmas now watch that fight back and enjoy it in, in all its splendour yep. Just to, to pick out one of the, the top moments from the year. It was incredible. Phil, great stuff. Definitely a, a worthy and excellent inclusion into our O2BM time capsule. You'll see the photo on the screen there. Katie Taylor, uh, unbelievable stuff. And uh, let's hope she does get that fight uh, in Croke Park to kind of uh, top her career off with the cherry and get the, the moment that she all wanted. The last addition to our O2BM time capsule is one of my own. And uh, last but, but certainly not least, it's the man on screen, Ronnie O'Sullivan, the rocket. Um, so back in April, May, he became the seven-time world snooker champion at the Crucible Theatre in Sheffield to level Stephen Hendry's record um, at 46, became the oldest world champion in Crucible history. That eclipsed Ray Reardon, who won his sixth title at the age of 45 back in 1978. Um, and it was quite the final as well, the fact that he had to go and beat Judd Trump, um, who had performed unbelievably well in the tournament up to that point, uh, kind of added to it. There was the emotional embrace with with uh, Joe Trump afterwards, where he seemed to hug him for for a year uh, and held on to him for for quite some time. He was very emotional in his in his interviews thereafter. 
he had his moment with his with his kids as well when they kind of came out at the table and took the lovely photographs with the the World Snooker Championship trophy. I think any discussion as to who the greatest snooker player of all time is lost any possible doubt with O'Sullivan levelling Stephen Hendry because he's already on top in terms of ranking titles, on top of uh, century breaks, maximum breaks, um, trophies won. So all of a sudden you're you're like Ronnie O'Sullivan is the goat. Kathleen McNamee has joined in with me, me in studio too. I was just enjoying that, I have to say. I was just sitting here taking it all in, being like, that sounds great. We've saved the la- the best one to last. Yeah, clearly. Well, I mean, of course, I sorry, of course. say that after yeah, yeah, already yeah, yeah. being here. Second but, you know. to the women, women qualifying for the World <laughs> I'll let you. I mean, you were very poetic about the way you were talking about it there. So <laughs> definitely one of the top three, I'll give you that yeah. much. It's funny, like, uh, he's, one of those, he's one of those sporting figures, Ronnie O'Sullivan, that opinions vary on him. Some people don't like him, some people like him because he, he can be cocky, he can yeah. be almost, um, you know, kind of letting go of his achievements at times and playing them down and it's almost seen as disrespectful to other players and he can kind of be critical of the players lower down in the, the snooker tour as yeah, well. He really doesn't like any of the young guns no, coming in at all. he doesn't. Especially if they think they're a bit great. But it's funny because like, I'm not, I won't lie, like I'm not a massive snooker yeah. fan, but Ronnie O'Sullivan is like one of the people I remember, like one of the first sports people, I think, that really came into my consciousness, just yes. my dad would have watched him and would have talked about him and like quite liked him and liked that he had that little bit of an edge oh. to him and also didn't really play up things all that much. Yes. Like I think he, he very much, uh, people of a certain characteristic, they really relate to him or something yeah. and they really understand where he's coming from. Well, he supersedes the sport. Like even if you hate the sport of snooker and how could you, if you're watching or listening, how could you hate the sport of snooker? But Ronnie O'Sullivan is a name even if you know nothing about snooker, you'll know the name Ronnie O'Sullivan yeah. and you'll know that he's a snooker player. Uh, but it's just, like there was a documentary and I love when they do a fly in the wall documentary. And that was after that win, wasn't it? Was, there, but you see, there was, there, another there was one, one that's not yet released. Okay. That was a Netflix documentary that yeah. fly on the wall followed him around for the entire duration. Oh, of and the, that one hasn't come out yet. Hasn't and, come out yet. And there's another one, yeah. Yeah, yeah the yeah. Eurosport one has come out and it's, by the way, brilliant as well. But the fly on the wall one is, like he actually said afterwards, he always needs motivation in order to play to play well. And he said he was actually forcing himself to play better because he knew the documentary was being filmed. And I he was read like, that earlier. Yeah. Like, like if I won a World Championship while I'm being watched, then that would be great. People yeah. would people would want to watch it more. And um, do you believe him though when he says that stuff about like the titles don't really matter no. and the winning doesn't really matter to him? It's just about he treat because I was reading up a bit about him winning that and he said he just treated it like a hobby like it doesn't really matter and I was like mm, I feel like you don't win seven world titles I understand there is the mental side to it to a certain point where you need to be able to like put the pressure aside yeah. and be like okay just focus on what's in front of me it's not a world title match I'm just gonna win and that's all that's important 100% but like the way he talks about it is kind of just I like oh, I'm just out in the backyard like well not in the backyard the back pick shed up the or whatever every now and again yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, I, I don't, don't believe it whatsoever like ironically of his seven world titles I think the last three were the most impressive for me. Like the the third most recent one was in 2013 where he hadn't picked up a queue in a year. He won the World Championship in 2012 and then said, I'm not playing snooker for mm. a year. He went to work on a pig farm at one point. Like he just completely removed himself from all reality for a year and didn't want to play snooker. Picked up the queue, I think, a week or two before the 2013 World Snooker Championship and won the tournament it, like in irrepressible form. Like like nobody had ever won it before it was like he, the shackles were off he didn't care because he hadn't played yeah. there was no pressure on him uh, and then the Covid one in 2020 
when in front of no crowd now the final there was a limited uh, capacity for the final for a couple of sessions of the final I think in the in the Crucible um, and it's a cauldron by the way I've been there twice for, for World Championships and it's just one of the best sporting atmospheres 900 odd people and it's such an unbelievable atmosphere. Is the crowd that small? It is small. It's like, it seems bigger, doesn't yeah. it? It's only between 900 and 1,000. That's mad, because I've only ever watched it on TV and stuff, and I just always assumed it was a bit bigger yeah. than that. Oh, it's incredible. And, and like that performance, I remember the, the, the 2020 semi-final when earlier in the day, Kyron Wilson had beaten Anthony McGill in one of the greatest semi-finals there had ever been. And then Ronnie O'Sullivan beats Mark Selby. Like It's first to 17 frames. Selby is 16, 15, 17, 16, 14 up, I think. Uh, but certainly Ronnie had to win three frames on the spin mm. and he does and it was just an incredible performance like the last frame when it's 16-16 and he's just playing these safeties and, and you know smacking the ball around the table and, and happening to go safe What so, is Shane Hannon doing when, when this is happening? Like, like, are you on your seat kind of like I couldn't even up? like I was actually if it's possible to be standing up holding your head watching snooker that's that's how you can imagine uh, me like I was just and, and then the I guess what made this one so special and the reason I'm putting it in the time capsule for this year is is the raw emotion that came out of Ronnie, like he went into the Eurosport studio after the, the long hug and got the trophy and the photographs and everything uh, and the embrace with, with Joe Trump. Um, and he just lost it. Like he just started crying and he he was so touched by what Joe Trump had said to him. Uh, he didn't reveal what Joe Trump had said to him, but he just said, I didn't realise Joe thought so much of me. Mm. And that's basically what he was essentially saying. And uh, like then in the in the, uh, the documentary that's kind of been aired in Eurosport since there's an extra clip where the cameras have stopped rolling and Ronnie just completely breaks down oh, and really? you're seeing Ronnie crying in a way that I've never seen him cry before it was just uh, one of those like there was a great quote from him afterwards as well where he he's, and this is classic Ronnie he says he wishes he hadn't won says all of a sudden when I've won this I've got 600 messages on my phone everyone's saying well done and asking when I'm going for the 8th it's like my worst nightmare come true again you can totally imagine that being his worst nightmare though like yeah. I wouldn't be surprised if he just took off for another year and then came back around. <laughs> I know. He was like, right, guys, got my ready for my eighth. Yeah, 100%. And, and I mean, like, he, he says he doesn't care about the eighth, but one of the first things he jokingly said was that, you know, uh, if someone asked him, he says, you're, you're level with Stephen Hendry now. And he said, yeah, for a year anyway. And like, he, like, you love to hear, like, his fans, Ronnie O'Sullivan fans will love to hear that. Snooker fans will love to hear that. Because Ronnie O'Sullivan, who's enjoying the game and playing the game mm-hmm. uh, and not giving out about the game, is good for snooker. And it's it's what you need. Like I'm even looking here at his route to the to the seventh world title back in in April and May. Uh, like first round he beats David Gilbert ten five. That's not never an easy uh, match. Gilbert has a good record at the Crucible. He beats Mark Allen thirteen four. And uh, Mark Allen, of course, in the later part of this year, goes on to win the UK Championship. Come into a serious bit of form. Steve Maguire he beats thirteen five, completely dominant. He beats John Higgins, another member of the class of ninety two, seventeen eleven in the in the semi final. All very dominant like, performance. Completely. There's yeah. just there's just no close matches here. And then Joe Trump in the final, he wins eighteen thirteen eventually. Um but I mean the way he won it, like he, he, he I think he dominated him completely in the first session, but then Joe Trump came back and threatened to have a real, real serious comeback. Um but it's just one of those one of those iconic moments. And I know I, I kind of wax lyrical about, about Snooker. I talk about Snooker on this show every day if I could there is something very nostalgic about snooker again I don't know if it's just because my dad watched it a lot when I was growing up it's the sound of it yeah you can fall asleep like that and the F1 actually you and my dad would probably get on quite well (laughs) yeah he must introduce Mr. McNamee yeah 100% (laughs) Uh, he probably has never been called Mr. McNamee before but that was very formal of me Uh, (laughs) he's actually a professor so he gets Professor Professor McNamee McNamee sometimes (laughs) Professor my apologies my apologies Uh, even the top prize in the World Snooker Championship uh, £500,000 and you can see like Ronnie is so well off now that like I'm always trying to gauge his reaction when they read out the the 
you know, here to to collect his trophy and the cheque for 500,000. I'm always trying to gauge his facial reaction. And he just doesn't react at all. He's like, a oh, half a million quid? Yeah, happy days. That's that's okay. I think the only time I've ever seen his face change is when he like sees something he doesn't like, <laughs> either from another player or from himself, and he just pulls a face. Yeah. And, like, just of total disapproval. Oh. And that's the only time. Apart from, like, maybe when he wins and he breaks down, like, the main faces you only ever see from him is that. Yeah. Do you think he will go for the, the eighth? 100%. Yeah. I think he says he doesn't want these, or sorry, doesn't care for these records, mm. but that's one that... Look, he can retire quite happily level with Hendry and, you know, that's that's an achievement in itself because he's ahead, as I said. I'm just looking at some of the records here. So, like, oldest world champion, as I said, he's now won 39 ranking titles. Uh, that was after, sorry, it's even more now, I think, after the, the, the ones later in the year, but holds almost every major record in the game, finished the season as the world's top-ranked player. Like, he has the most triple crown, which is the mm. UK Championship of the Masters in the world, the most ranking titles, the most century breaks, the most 147s, um, and now level with Henry as as you know the do- most dominant player in world snooker championship history. To do it as the oldest player to meet, one yeah, of the, yeah, oldest player to win it as well. Yeah. Like just records left. And the thing about that, like I know snooker is not necessarily about the physical side of things, but mm. like just to keep that sort of mentality up yeah. for that long and keep yourself in a place where you actually, and I mean maybe the year of the pig farm contributed <laughs> to that some way where he did just take himself out of it completely, but to yeah. keep yourself at that level is massive well that stuff can help and I guess Steve Peters his uh, psychologist he's, he's uh, credited him with a lot of you know keeping his mind right off the mm. off the base as well and Ronnie loves running like he does a lot of running now and kind of stays away from the main circuit and the fans when he's at the crucible he stays he's got a, a barge on the river and he's he, wow. he very often he sometimes some nights stays there and cooks there and kind of react, re- relaxes with the ducks all around him and he's just a fascinating character yeah he like, really is whether you love him or hate him uh, look I've been lucky enough to interview Ronnie twice and he is a pleasant individual. Like, he can be brash and uh, at times moody, but... Like, a lot of these people are, though, who, like, sports people that we consider being brash and stuff. You meet them and they're sound. 100%. Like just... They have this reputation because yeah. of what they're like on the, on the, on the pitch or on the table or whatever. Uh, but that's my addition to the... Uh, hopefully very, a very good addition, Shane, I have to say. It has to be included. So uh, that is our... O to be AM time capsule. Thanks, Monday, for everything, Kathleen. Uh, across the year as well, and uh, thanks to everyone for, for watching and listening across the year uh, in between. So, our final O to be AM time capsule for 2022, where we put our top sporting moments of the year in. Uh, Nathan had the men's Ireland football final and uh, that performance from David Clifford and Kerry as they beat Galway. Uh, Jer had Limerick's three in a row in the hurling, and of course, Brian Cody's retirement and that being his last game. Garrod Hegarty's performance for Limerick, uh, getting a mention there. Kathleen had the very, very worthy mention, as I said, probably the top of the list. Uh, Republic of Ireland women's national team qualifying for their first ever Women's World Cup, and that's something we look forward to in 2023. Ashton O'Reilly had Meads All Ireland double, um, creating the, the two in a row for uh, Vicky Wall and Co. as they beat Kerry in the All Ireland Ladies football final Tommy added Sean O'Shea's winning free for Kerry in the All-Ireland semi-final win uh, over Dublin uh, Cameron brought us Ireland's win over New Zealand in the rugby series John Duggan had the emergence of live golf and of course in a more positive slant in golf Rory McIlroy's Masters final round and uh, a good year for Irish golf Phil brought us Katie Taylor uh, and her incredible year beating Amanda Serrano and uh, our other two world champions as well in Lisa O'Rourke and Amy Broadhurst and of course the last edition for myself Ronnie O'Sullivan's seventh world snooker title so if you missed any of it watch it back on YouTube listen to the podcast as well uh, until 2023 have a good one OTB AM with Gillette get into your flow with the new Gillette Labs Razor with exfoliating bar